I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the FT Money Show from Investors Chronicle and FT Money. Hello and welcome to the FT Money Show. In today's programme, more market turmoil. Who would buy bank shares now when you can earn 6% risk-free in a bank savings account? Executive pensions, why it's time to switch plans if you want to keep your scheme benefits. Emerging markets funds, can they keep growing while Western markets fall? And we have some good news and bad news on charitable giving. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with the help of my colleague from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week, we saw the FTSE fall nearly 4% in just one day after the fallout from the Bear Stearns collapse and rescue crossed over the Atlantic. Then we saw shares in HBOS, owner of the Halifax, fall 20% in a few hours as traders spread unfounded rumours about emergency Bank of England funding in an apparently illegal attempt to cash in by short-selling stock. So how can it be then that the top six shares bought by private investors in the past week, certainly according to the broker TD Waterhouse, are Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, HBOS, Lloyd's TSB, Alliance and Leicester and Bradford and Bingley. And how can Lehman Brothers, the US bank that's no stranger to rumours about its own subprime exposure, now be saying that the time has come to change our previously negative views on financials? Uh, Steve, to me, this doesn't make sense. How can people be buying into these stocks while they're just falling so fast? Well, Matthew, I mean, it says that a lot of these shares are popular. These are incredibly widely held shares, the most widely held shares on the UK market. Halifax is number one. Uh, Santander is number two. Santander, the owner of Abbey. Some of these banks have fallen nearly two-thirds since their peaks a year ago, uh, their their peak a a year ago before the credit crunch hit. Um, So bargain hunters are inevitably saying they've fallen so much that they can't fall any further. The only way is up again. At the same time, of course, bank shares have traditionally offered good yields, and of course, that fall has meant those yields have looked even juicier. But there's an old stock market saying, which is don't try to catch a falling knife. And if anything's been falling like a very heavy knife of late, it's been, uh, you know, shares in HBOS, shares in uh, uh, Barclays, shares in RBS, all, all, all of these banks. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the bare argument here is that we just... Ha- you you ain't necessarily seen it all yet in banks, that there are still hidden horrors to come. Um, 
the appropriately named Bear Stearns, you know, um, was something like the fifth biggest investment bank has now had a rescue. The scares, the unfounded, the unfounded scares about Halifax this week just show that there is enormous concern in the marketplace at the moment. And yes, you know, um, we were saying a couple of months ago, you know, bank shares have fallen great kind of opportunity for bargain hunting and of course what have they done since they've fallen a bit further well i suppose a great opportunity for bargain hunting if your view is very long term and, and if you're willing to go through what could be months and months you know, to perhaps till the end of this year of you know, volatility <laughs> in the markets yeah. um, and, and you can just remain calm on the sidelines but the fact that uh, so many people are buying in at the moment suggests that they they think that the only way is up from from this point on, and that that wouldn't be the case. Well, um, the alternative, of course, and this is a you know investment is a relative game, and a, an alternative option for uh, investors, of course, is to to look at the accounts effectively offered by these banks, um, and say that because the credit crunch has forced up savings rates. Actually, there's some juicy savings rates out there. Don't forget, often, uh, much of the time that people are really into the stock market is, is when the, the other alternatives aren't so attractive, when cash rates aren't terribly good. We're in an unusual situation currently where savings rates are incredibly high because of the credit squeeze, because of lenders' need to raise fu retail funds, despite the fact that base, base rates have started to come down and probably come down further. Um, so... A cash savings account is the alternative. And, of course, you know, we're, we're fast approaching the end of the tax year. If you haven't got a cash ISA, then that money's tax-free as well. And if you look at the rates available on some of these bank savings accounts and you compare those rates with the dividend yields on the shares that you mentioned earlier, mm. um, some of the yields are higher than the rates. But, of course, the, the risk to your capital in holding the shares is mm. great, whereas if you can get 6% in a in a savings account in a cash ISA, um, tax free, risk free up up, into, up to the compensation limit, mm. um, it's a no brainer. Well, it's, it's maybe not maybe a no brainer is possibly overreacting. It's the choice to make. Um, you know, dividends can be cut, and that's a fear with one of the banks, um, which would mean that that yield isn't a real yield, um, as well as capital values falling. Uh, dividends, of course, the hope is that they will grow over time. So it is a question of, you know, you pays your money and takes your choice here. And if you want to uh, pay your money and take your choice, you can read more uh, about prospects for bank shares and indeed the wider market and uh, the best savings rates uh, on offer in this week's FT Money, in the weekend FT on the 22nd and 23rd of March and also online at ft.com forward slash money. You can also send in your questions uh, by emailing us at ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. Still to come, Eastern Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Can these emerging markets keep delivering investment returns as the credit crisis deepens? And we have some good news on boosting charitable donations. But first, executive pension plans, or EPPs. These schemes for high earners were popular because owners were able to put in large contributions and could sometimes take out more than 25% of their funds as a tax-free cash lump sum. But since the pension rules changed on A-Day back in April 2006, a number of insurance companies decided to stop acting as scheme administrators. 
Instead, the obligations were passed to the scheme trustees, which often meant that individual scheme members became responsible for running these plans. So financial advisers now say that members should exercise their option to switch schemes to keep their extra benefits. To find out more about how it works, Elaine Moore from FT Money met up with Jason Butler from Bloomsbury Financial Planning. So, Jason, some members of executive pension plans have been caught out with uh, HMRC compliance rules. Why is this? Uh, Well, basically, since simplification came in in April 2006, when all the pension rules changed, um, the the HMRC made a stipulation that uh, uh, people, um, trustees of schemes, had to actually uh, submit an annual return, basically telling them about the scheme, what was in it, who was in it, and so on. Um, and unfortunately, because of the problems of getting hold of information, a number of the scheme administrators, i.e. the insurance companies that provided the plans in the past, um, have decided not to actually fulfil that responsibility, and they've pushed it on to the trustees, which in most cases the trustees are the members of the scheme. Can you just outline what an EPP is? Yes, an EPP is an executive pension plan, and effectively it's a pension policy provided by an insurance company subject to what's called occupational pension rules, which is not the same as the personal pension rules prior to 2006. And the reason that people took them out was that they enabled business owners an efficient way of extracting capital from their business for use after they'd finished uh, working, and there was quite attractive tax-free cash entitlements and uh, options for taking benefits. Most of those benefits have gone since April 2006 because the contribution limits and the benefit limits have pretty much uh, become the same for virtually all personal pensions, occupational schemes, etc. So are EPP schemes a lot less popular now? Well, I I can't think of any reason. I've been doing this job for 20 years. I cannot think of one reason why you would buy an executive pension plan subject to occupational trustee rules when you can buy a personal pension plan and let someone else take the strain for a fraction of the cost. So what should existing members of an EPP scheme do to meet the compliance rules of the revenue? Well, very simply, they've either got to fill the forms in themselves each year um, or they've got to get someone to do it for them or a number of individuals will be better advised to transfer their uh, executive pension plan either to a personal pension scheme if their tax-free cash is less than 25% or uh, to a personal pension scheme if there are two members of the scheme transferring to the same personal pension if their tax-free cash is more than 25%, and that can either be a stakeholder scheme or a self-invested scheme if it's a big enough fund, Um, Or uh, they can transfer, if it's less than 25% of the fund entitlement to tax-free cash, they can just transfer it to any personal pension, you know, stakeholder or self-invested, and they they can just do it if they're just the only member. And that's probably the simplest route. But do watch the charges and be very careful about what you're going to invest the money in because that's just as important as filling in forms. That was Elaine Moore talking to Jason Butler from Bloomsbury Financial Planning. And for more on executive pension plans, you can read Elaine's article in FT Money in the Weekend FT on the 22nd and 23rd of March. Coming up, we have good news and bad news on charitable giving. Before that, though, emerging markets funds. With the emerging markets of China, India and Eastern Europe growing at four times the rate of Western economies, last year many fund managers began to suggest that they were decoupling from the West and heading on their own upward path. But since the beginning of this year, the Chinese and Indian stock markets have fallen faster than almost all others. 
So where do the emerging market opportunities now lie, and what sort of returns can investors realistically expect? Well, to find out, I went to meet Nick Price, manager of Fidelity's Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa Fund, and I began by asking him how these markets have been affected by the credit crisis. I think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question when one looks at at the global macro backdrop and particularly the, the subprime crisis and the problems that the banks are having, particularly in the US and the UK. And um, the, the key thing when you look at this particular region is there's been no direct subprime exposure from the banks. And that's largely because the banks have been so busy lending to their own consumers. There's an enormous amount of growth and these regions are starting from a particularly low starting point. So if you look at uh, mortgage penetration in Russia, for example, it's only at 2%. That compares to the UK and US, which is at roughly 80%. So the good news is there's no direct uh, subprime and, and, and bad credit exposure in this region. I think the knock-on impact is also particularly positive for this region because what you're seeing is very uh, accommodative monetary policy from the Fed, and that in turn, I think, uh, stimulates inflationary fires, which is particularly good for some of the resources within the region. But Nick, this is a this is a vast region, and it must have um, you know, very different characteristics, very different sort of drivers of, uh, of growth and drivers of the economy uh, uh, across it. Uh, what would you pick out as the uh, as the main characteristics? I'll give you a flavour for each of the uh, key parts of the regions. Starting with Eastern Europe, one of the key trends that we've seen is outsourcing. This is driven by the salary discrepancies. As a way of example, uh, in Germany, for example. Uh, work would receive 18 euros an hour. That's as low as one euro an hour in Russia. There's enormous economic sense in moving factories. That, again, increases employment. One sees higher salary growth in Russia and is great for consumer-related stocks. In the Middle East, the Middle East is the world's largest producer of oil. It has 60% of the world's oil reserves. And one's seeing enormous amounts of money being recycled back into the Middle East in infrastructure-related projects, which is great for me because I can invest in steel-related companies, cement-related companies, construction companies that benefit from this infrastructure boom. Finally, in Africa, one's seeing a very strong consumption growth. One's seeing strong growth in mobile telephony. For example, in, uh, in soaps, PZ Cousins is selling um, 20% more soap this year than last year in West Africa, and Diageo is selling 30% more Guinness uh, this year than last year in West Africa. So very strong consumption growth driven by investment in resources. But how long can this um, continue? I'm, I'm sure uh, people in West Africa can continue to drink Guinness for, you know, for a while and, and, uh, and buy um, uh, a fair amount of soap. But the other pressures that you, that you talked about, the, uh, the upward pressure on wages in Eastern Europe, that's going to you know, presumably dent the outsourcing story. Um, 60% of the world's oil coming from these regions, but how long can oil remain at these historically high levels? Um, is this, a, is this a, a growth story that's going to peter out? No, I think it's in its uh, very early stages. Uh, I mean, if you look at the outsourcing story, we're talking about salary discrepancy of 18 euros down to six, down to one. So I, I think it has an extremely long way to go. I think we're not even halfway through the outsourcing story, for example. On the oil story, I'm, I'm particularly positive on the long, uh, the long run uh, uh, in oil. I, I'm in the Jim Rogers and the commodity bull camp. And the reason is simply this. If you look at oil consumption on a per capita basis, if you look at oil consumption in Europe, uh, in Japan, in Korea, the average person consumes approximately 15 barrels of oil per person. The average American, by the way, consumes about 25 barrels of oil per person. 
but the average person in China, China and India consumes roughly one barrel per person. So they are a very, very long way, long way away from the world's average, particularly the world's developed average. And when you consider there's 2.3 billion people uh, in China and India, I think that, this, um, that the oil price has a long way to go, and I believe we're in the relatively early stages of, uh, of oil's bull, bull run. Well, you mentioned China and India. Um, investors will have seen what's happened to uh, the, the markets in China and India, the, the way that funds are investing in those regions have really been hit hard in the yeah. last few months. Um, what do you think the outlook is for, you know, for your particular fund, and why do you think it can, uh, it can perform better? I'll, I'll just start off with a quick comment on China and India, and I'm by no means an expert on that region, but... The, the, the growth in China and India, I think, is, is there. I don't think the, the, the stock market itself has uh, uh, ran up very hard uh, late last year, and the multiples on, on a number of stocks looked um, very extended, in my view. And so the correction that we're seeing in China and India is in no means uh, unexpected. Um, but when you look at, at this particular region, I'll make, I'll make a number of comparisons. The first is when you look at... China's particular um, business model, it's largely about processing, it's about cheap manufacturing, and there's intense competition. And so when you look at, uh, for example, a sock manufacturer in, ch- in China, what, what you're absolutely certain of is the fact that there's another 20 or 30 competitors uh, lined up um, uh, against each other, and that means lower returns on capital. When you look at a place like Africa, I'll give you a, a, a classic example um, ShopRite, which is a food retail chain, are uh, rolling out these food retail stores into the rest of Africa. And what they're doing is they're putting the first, uh, I guess, Western retail food store into Luanda, capital of Angola. And they're seeing enormous returns on capital. And the reason is there's no other competitor. It's not like uh, when you go into Poland, you'll see a Tesco, Carrefour, uh, Metro, all lined up competing against each other. There's only one uh, offer there, and as a result, they earn exceptional returns on capital. And I think that's one of the biggest differences. There's a far lower level of competition, particularly in Africa, but also lower in Middle East and and Eastern Europe to a lesser extent, and that provides for higher returns on capital, particularly when you contrast that to China. The second thing about this region is that it's extremely rich in resource. It has over 80% of the world's oil. It has uh, practically all the world's precious metals, huge uh, proportion of its iron ore, over 40%. And that's the area that China and India, 2.3 billion people, that's the area that they shorten. And so I think it's probably in some ways one of the best methods of um, monetizing and and profiting from the growth of China and India, which I believe is a long-term secular trend. Well, let's look at your region now. Um, I think your fund has um, produced a return of, I think, 15% since its launch in June of 2007. Um, What sort of um, growth do you think investors can expect over the next 12 to 24 months? Uh, That's correct. The the number you quoted is correct. This region should generate uh, GDP growth uh, this year in the range of 4 to 6%. It's a very disparate region, but that's why I sort of caveated with a 4 to 6% range. That compares to Western Europe at around about uh, 2% type levels and China and India at in, in the range of 8 to 9% type levels. Valuations look attractive across the... Um, across the piece. Uh, if you look at um, the consumer-related companies, many of them are trading on uh, seven, eight times earnings. So one has attractive, uh, 
earnings multiples. And uh, the resource stocks as well are not particularly expensive, although resource prices are high, certainly by historic standards. I guess where I'm going to here is that I would see earnings growth in the range of somewhere, uh, somewhere in the range of 15%, uh, and, and one could certainly uh, expect that sort of level of return out of these markets over the next uh, 12 months. That was Nick Price, manager of Fidelity's Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa Fund. And for more on emerging markets, visit ft.com forward slash your money forward slash investments. And finally today, it's good news, bad news on charitable giving. Uh, now, Steve, you know, like uh, the DJs Smashy and Nicey, we obviously do a lot of work for charity, uh, don't like to talk about it. But we do have something that is worth talking about this week, and that's a way of boosting uh, charitable donations. Um, how does it work? Well, it's also you know a hard-headed uh, approach to charitable giving as well. High-rate taxpayers who give under gift aid um, can actually reclaim the extra, currently 18%, but actually, from next tax year, oddly, they can reclaim 20% because of the change in the tax rules. Basically, so, so let's make this absolutely clear. So currently, high-rate taxpayers, 40%. So they bung a pound to a charity through the gift aid scheme. Charity can reclaim 22% basic rate tax. High-rate taxpayer keeps the 18% or gets the 18% back through the tax return from next year because the, the 22 is coming down to 20. On the, the charity can only reclaim 20, hence Alistair Darling's rabbit 2% extra transitional relief for charities. But the other side of that is while charities are going to be no worse off, high-rate taxpayers are going to be better off. To answer your question... Um, <laughs> that was really good. That, explanation of the good news of that, the budget. Yeah. That's the general good news. That's yeah. the general good news, that, that gift aid is, is getting better value for um, high-rate taxpayers from April. Um, there's also account, an account out there offered by the Charities Aid Foundation, a uh, clearinghouse for charities, if you like, runs a lot of backing corporations and so on. Makes it easier to put all your giving in one place and consolidate your accounts for, for your tax return purposes. It will also top up your donations, as long as your donation to the account, which then eventually goes on to nominated charities, by an extra £25. So there's there's two lots of good news. There one, well, one the, um, the, the the sort of clawback for the charities is, yeah. is, is going to mm. um, not fall, thanks to the budget, plus extra 25 quid on... Is that on every donation that's made? Uh, um, it has to be a, a, an initial donation of £100 when you open an account. And then you get an extra £25. Yes, yes. On so, top, so, so it's a one-off. It's a one-off. But it's three bits of good news. I mean, charity's no worse off, thanks to Alistair Darling's largesse, ho-hum. Um, Higher-rate taxpayers are actually better off because they can reclaim 20 whereas pre, uh, currently they can only reclaim 18 And then if they want choose to do it through this account, they open one of these new accounts, and 80,000 people have got these accounts already with the CAF, um, and put £100 in the account, the CAF will top it up by £25. That's three lots of good news and no bad news. I I, I, I like like Mm, this approach. Bad news. There There is is a bit of bad news. Inevitably, I mean, we've all heard the stories about um, uh, charity costs and so on. Now, the cost of opening one of these accounts is... The CF will take 4% off every donation it gets through them for its running costs. Right. So How does that compare? Is, is, that, is that relatively high? Well, or? it says not. It says otherwise the charity that you would give to directly would have costs, of course. Um, but it is, um, it is something of a hit. 
um, and the alternative for individuals, of course, is to is to give directly, set up a standing order um, to to their charity, whether it's for a, you know regular payment or sponsoring a child or whatever it is. But if you go through the Charities Aid Foundation uh, route, it's still ninety six pence in every pound that's going to go to the charity plus the plus, one-off plus, top-up uh, well plus the one-off top-up and, and the key point as well is about the account it does the reclaiming of the basic rate tax relief at source within the account which can which the CAF tells me can help some smaller charities for whom the admin costs of actually reclaiming that basic rate tax would outweigh the benefit well getting rid of that admin burden yeah. for, the, for a cost of 4% or 4p in the pound doesn't sound too bad to me. It sounds like very good news and if you'd like to know more about this and how you can uh, make donations through this account, uh, look out for Steve's Deal of the Week um, in FT Money with uh, FT Weekend on the 22nd and 23rd of March. And that's all we've got time for in this week's FT Money show. Remember that you can email your views and your questions to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. And we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. Until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Steve. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.